Welcome into the Orlando Drummer Podcast, episode 10. It's hard to believe it's episode 10. I feel like I say this every single week that it, I can't believe we're on this episode. That's a <laughs> perpetual, perpetual realization it, I keep having every time, huh? Yeah, it's hard to believe that we would continue to record this garbage show. I know, we just keep going. <laughs> we just keep going for some reason. This idea he, should have been thrown in the trash I know. seven months ago. How long can you talk about drums? Apparently a lot, right? Long, long enough, right? You've established a career on it. Other people have established a career on it. Eventually, someone was going to start talking about it. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I almost said it's like it's about time, but at the same time, I mean, yeah, people have been doing drum podcasts for a long time. In so many ways, we're also late to the game and that this yeah. is not like one of the first drum podcasts, but yeah, um, it's it's much needed. It's much needed for sure. I think conversations are better had here than in like the YouTube comment section, which yeah, is like, or you know, Twitter, Instagram comments where it's yes, just like this short is not, snippets. This is not where we learn things. Instagram captions uh, do not hold nuggets of truth necessarily. So yeah. If, yeah. If you learned anything from the podcast, let us know. Yeah. Let us know. <laughs> What'd you learn? Yeah. Oh, cool. and also we have a, and uh, I don't know, I want to call it a segment, not necessarily a segment, but every week kicking off, I've asked Chris to pick out a loop from the library for us to just feature to tell you about um, what that loop is. I can tell you a little bit about when we wrote it. Uh, myself and Joe Hodgen, uh, who's on the podcast next week, by the way. Um, so yeah, each week we're gonna pick um, pick a loop, and then I'll play you guys a little audio clip from it as well, just so we can sort of you know show you this massive library and sort of theme the episode loosely around one loop. So which loop do we have this week, brother? Yeah, so I've been listening to a lot of Snarky Puppy lately. Oh, as, yeah. As you do, um, there come those as moments. One, as one does. As one does. <laughs> um, so I wanted to find a loop on the site that kind of matched that vibe. Sure. And I really liked Swing Soul. Uh, was was one of the loop packs, yeah. and specifically loop three on that pack. Loop was three, very in, fun. In volume one or two? In volume two. Volume two. Yeah, volume two. I like volume loop two better. Yeah. yeah, a little bit more dynamic in that one, real fast. So it allows you to kind of, I mean, it's not snarky puppy. It's not in an odd seven eight time. It's not crazy. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's still a lot of fun. I like it a lot. I like jamming to it. It's yeah. fun. Yeah, super fun loop, man. So yeah, let's hear about that one. Yeah, it's um the swing soul packs were were interesting because it's this it goes back to like this big band like sweet soul kind of era which is super fun to play it feels like i don't know like there was a lot of musical progress in that era because there were these pop elements like universal melodies that like how could you not think this is like such a good melody but it also had this high level of like jazz musicianship like like heavy elements of swing stuff like that so it's very tricky to play to them sometimes because it's not purely jazz swing there are like there's backbeats in it or i like to play backbeats against a lot of the loops that are in that swing soul um loop pack or both of them really two volumes but um i know the loop you're talking about in particular it, it's a really really fun to play that whole pack is a blast by the way swing soul uh, volume two drumless loop pack anyway let me play a clip for you so you can hear what that sounds like check it out
is our loop of the week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, there are two volumes of the Swing Soul V2 loop pack, um, and you can stream all of these on orlandodrummer.com with a membership. Of course, you can buy any loop pack that you want. If you want to own those files, download and keep them forever, you can totally do that without signing up for anything. But if you want unlimited streaming access to the entire loop library, it's one of the largest drumless loop libraries in the world. Um, that is included with a membership to orlandodrummer.com. You can use code ODPC. That's down in the description of this podcast. It'll save you 25% on your first two months there. You can use our iOS and Android apps. Uh, and again, streaming access to the entire library along with uh, 160 hours of video content. And that is our plug for the week. Yeah. And you can stream on the ODTV app, which yeah. is available on iOS and Android. And they're incredibly convenient. If you have like a studio setup that's remote with no Wi-Fi, you can go to the studio, save it offline, go practice the loops in the studio, yep. come back, wherever. Yeah. It's great. And the apps were truly, the, one of the biggest advantages of them were the, was the offline playback. Because we have tons of, of members on the site and students that would say things like, hey, I... I'm only able to practice in my basement and I have no Wi-Fi. How do I access your lessons that I paid for? Basically, you're asking like, how do I watch Netflix without internet? And even Netflix has a hard time solving this problem, yeah. right? Um, so for us, offline playback inside of an app was the was the solution here. And it's cool because it lets you download the entire library if you want to. And whether you're in your garage with no Wi-Fi or if you're practicing at like the gym of your church, these are real places where people yeah. have drum sets and find themselves without internet. Um, it's a solution to all of those problems so yeah check it out and um yeah swing soul is the uh the featured pack of the week v2 check that one out sweet cool that'll move us on to my favorite segment of the podcast player puzzle player puzzle yeah let's do it so with so many drummers out there it's hard to tell the difference but some stand out so well that they're absolutely recognizable and player puzzle will provide three hints to see if adam can guess who's playing let's see if we can stump him how many times have you stumped me so far once just the one and it was royster, royster. it was royster it was yeah yeah it was oyster <laughs> yeah and that one admittedly was borderline cheating i chose like an old photo with like symbols he didn't play anymore and a really old clip yeah he's just such a chameleon like playing wise that's why it was so difficult to go from the audio but i'm going um, for for close to strike out here i'm trying to get them all so go ahead and click on 50 BPM. 50 BPM is the title of this clip, and we don't know who it is. Let's see. Oh, I think I know already. Oh, man. <laughs> I think I know. So if now I might be wrong here, but I, I think I'm remembering this is taken from a live performance in like a PASIC type setting. Yeah, is that the <laughs> <laughs> okay? So I got that part right. So yeah, okay. So I think I know what it is. Um, this drummer has done a few videos, like basically exploring the landscape of a very slow tempo. I've seen him do it all the way down to like 35 BPM, which is just like. Fuck you, dude. 35 BPM. Are you kidding? Um, but yeah, I, I okay, so I'm 90 plus percent sure I know who this is. But for those playing at home, 
Let's go ahead and keep going. What is our uh, what's our fun fact about this this mediocre drummer we're talking about today? This <laughs> this very mediocre semi talented dude drummer used to be in a Senegalese band when he was around age 18, 19. Senegalese. Can we unpack what that word means? <laughs> like a, a band from Senegal. From Senegal. That doesn't help me at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Goodness. I don't know what Basically like hyper Latin, Afro-Cuban. Hyper Latin. Yeah. When you get so Latin, it's hyper Latin. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. So really abstract, really ethnic music le- for sure. Let me tell... We'll we'll show a kit photo. Okay, okay. So this is deceiving though, because that's a sonar kit, and this guy is not a sonar artist. Hmm. Um, he is a Tama artist, so this must be a bit of an older photo. But it's definitely right along the lines of the setup that he plays. This is brother Matt Garska. It is Matt Garska. Ooh. Now, w- one fact I'd like to point out too. Okay. The fun fact: the Senegalese man when he was age 18, 19 was from an interview where you were five feet to his right. Oh, I remember being this. Interview- I think it was for a Vic Firth event a long time ago. long time ago, yeah. Robert Sput was to your right. And Aaron Spears was there, too. It, yeah, a lot of drummers were yeah, there. Yeah, and Kaz was yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And there's a lot. It's funny if you find these uh, Vic Firth interviews and stuff. Adam's just kind of like in... The background? I asked the question in one of them, and you I did think. A, you yeah. did ask Matt a question about, like, what concepts did you discover that helped unlock new potentials? I remember that. And his answer was just, all of them, bro. All of all them. All of them, <laughs> sure. them unlock potential. And I'm sure. like, what a garbage answer. Just, like, it doesn't help any answer well, any question. And the thing with, with somebody like Matt, and you'll see this theme throughout all of his his interviews. He's, he's very big-brained in mm-hmm. that he's, like, contemplating, like, much larger ideas than sometimes what what people are asking. Like they're asking for a simple answer and sometimes he he doesn't give you that because that's not how he thinks about things, right? Like everything sort of trees off into much larger, bigger picture concepts. And sometimes it can be difficult for people who think that way to sort of like re-simplify to like to answer the question that people are actually asking. It it gets very, very tricky. He's definitely... um, you know, high-level artistry looks like that sometimes. It's confusing to hear, hear people explain themselves in that way. But So I'm curious why, at what point was he playing this sonar kit that we have so here? So the, the, the code name was Louis de Mulel, uh, and um, <laughs> it, was, it was just the caption of the photo on Instagram. He was recording an album with Louis. And oh, okay. just, that was the setup. This is just a long time ago. I would assume before Tama uh, had endorsed him. Sure, but. sure, sure. Yeah, fascinating man. Ago. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a thousand little mannerisms and things in his playing that are so. I mean, for okay, I should say he's an excellent chameleon. Like he's phenomenal, like world class at sounding like whatever he wants to sound like. But with that said, he can't like mask his own musical voice. Um, nobody really can. So there's little things in his playing that are just like, ah, oh, yeah, that's him. You know, I don't I don't know how to articulate it necessarily, but. Think along the lines of, like, why does Benny Greb's groove sound like his groove? It just does, and that is what it is. We're not really going to quantify that in this podcast, at least. But, um, yeah, man, so in in a weird way, like, Matt Garska will always be an easy one for me to hear. It's just nobody sounds exactly like him. And I had weirdly seen that clip years ago. That's a dope clip, by the way, if you haven't Mm -hmm. seen that. Was it Pasek that it was? Yeah, I think it was Pasek. Yeah. Um, I don't know, 2014. I've been, yeah, a Pasek, Matt Garska, 50 BPM. Really, really cool. Yeah. Dope clip. Fun. Cool. Next drummer. Okay. Go ahead and click Golden Boy. Golden Boy. Here we go. 
I'm so confused because I heard things that threw me off many times. I heard a trappiness of like Luke Holland. I heard power like an Aaron Spears, like like a like the like the kind of power that comes from and I I, I don't mean this in any type of like negative way, like a big person, like a heavy-handed, like a large person. I mean like serious power, like playing through the toms, you know? And then I also heard like a like weird like drunk drumming sort of textures, which is not necessarily the style of like a Luke Holland or an Aaron Spears. Like a lot of those heavy hitters don't necessarily play with that drunk feeling. That was really tricky, but very high level. So this is not like too an abstract or totally unknown of a person because man, that was really good. I don't know. That was a tough clip. Mm. Tough, tough clip. Okay, so what we got? What's our what's our what's our hint here? Your fun fact is that this drummer's go-to coffee order is a maple latte with oat milk and cinnamon. Oh man! Okay, so I suppose we have to open this up that it could be a female. We are an equal opportunity <laughs> <Sorry>. podcast. <laughs> I'm a black coffee drinker. You ain't getting me with any of that that maple oat milk nonsense. Okay, I'm just kidding. You can drink whatever coffee you want. Um, man. That doesn't well unless I've had coffee with them, which I don't can't remember <laughs> anybody getting that Maybe coffee. Maybe you could have. Maybe okay. So let's go. Let's go. Hint three uh, to our kit photo. Yeah, it's Golden Boy kit. Huh. So now I'm thinking the first name I said might be correct. What color is the hardware? On this DW kit. We got a DW kit with a crazy burl finish. I don't know. It's Beautiful a, it's, finish. It's some finish. I have no idea. You have to you have to guess that on your own. I only provide the kit photo. I don't provide kit details. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess it makes sense. I got to unpack the whole thing, right? Interesting. So, I'm a little thrown off with the Earthworks, Earthworks microphones because I don't know that this drummer uses those. But given that it is in a gym... I've seen this drummer do that. Well, I'll tell you how I'm working towards. I, I think it's Luke Holland, but let me talk out why. DW Remo, for sure. I see Vic Firth sticks on the snare, which you, Luke was with Vic Firth for quite a while. He's recently moved over to Minel as a signature stick um, with, with Minel now. But the cymbal setup looks a lot like his. He'll really oftentimes do two crashes, neither of which are very big. They're a little on the high side. For my preference. I've seen him do 10-14 or 10-16, whatever these toms are. Um, I've seen him record in a gym. That looks like his signature stack. It explains the trappiness, but that was some powerful playing from him. Like, more powerful than I'm used to hearing from him. Interesting. So, I think I'm going to go. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to say this is Luke Holland. It is Luke Holland. Oh, yes. Got it. Man. This dude has turned out. Has he been lifting weights? Luke, you out here lifting? What you doing, brother? That clip was from forever ago. May, maybe four years ago. Man, I've also gotten coffee with Luke Holland, and you exactly. didn't order a maple oat milk, bro. You his, other, me off. his other go-to coffee order <laughs> is a cold brew. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, he, that would have been my guess. Yeah. Yeah, cold, it was years ago. He, he did a video very recently where he answered like the 20 most asked questions, and I cannot believe that... Coffee the, was in there? The, yeah, Who like cares? what's your go-to coffee order was... One of the twenty most asked questions to him, <laughs> what a and he, he either goes, you know, to one extreme or the other, which is extremely sugary, milkshakey, or just black latte death. or black. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. 
Funny man. Yeah, I haven't seen Luke in a, in a couple years. I think the last time I saw him was at that Roland event mm-hmm. um, when they launched the TD-17. That was a really, really cool event. He was there. He actually performed at that. Um, and then at NAMM, we've hung you know a few times before then. But he's never been to this studio, but he was at the... The last yeah. studio, the older studio at the old house. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an interview with him back on uh, OrlandoDrummer.com. I think what we talked about most of the time was balancing the desire to do like touring and, and also make content. And like, how do you balance kind of between those two? Because he did a very good job of sort of splitting himself down the middle of being a touring gigging drummer, but also putting out content with some sort of regularity, right? Um, and so it was interesting to have a conversation with him about balancing those two, though admittedly that whole landscape has changed or at least simplified now that touring has kind of been off the table for a, a year, you know, and still going. But anyway, man, awesome guy. I've known him for a while. Um, and that was a very tricky one because that playing was uh, impressively powerful. That's why it's the only reason I didn't say it was him initially is like I don't consider him to be that heavy handed. But man, that was some uh, that was some thick playing thick yeah. with three cues. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, hopefully we can stump you next time. Um, Never. I had a blast. Yeah. I'm hoping flowing. to. Next episode, <laughs> I'm really hoping. That'll close out Player Puzzle. It will open up the avenue of Accent or Ghost. Let's do it. Yes. If you're not familiar with Accent or Ghost, this is a piece where we get Adam's view on many aspects of the drumming industry. And at the end, we'll get an approval, an accent, or a disapproval, a ghost. First topic up. Fashion sticks, such as sticks that glow in the dark, they light up, mm. they're on fire, they're made of sparkles, they're, <laughs> they're made, made, of, made of sparkles. They're made of dreams. <laughs> what do you think about them? I think, man, I think when, you, when you're talking just like painting the wood like colors, like that's, that's fine. I think that doesn't, yeah, that didn't bother me at all. Why not? Why not, right? Who, who grip. Cares? Or grip, yeah. Some people, some people, yeah, I mean, there are definitely like, painted sticks that have a, a different texture to them. I used to mm-hmm. play for years um, Dave Weckl's signature sticks. It was years ago. They're like painted dark brown? No, they're stained. Are they stained, yeah, really? stained. Yeah, I think... Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like a Lana mahogany Lewis color. plays those. They're like, yeah, they're like really? a dark stained wood. I think that's just for look mm-hmm. or something like that. Or I don't know, maybe it brings out nat- like natural tonality in like a rim shot or a cross stick or maybe. something like that. Could. I don't yeah. know. Weckl's got some weird uh, theories behind that. Well, then there's also like fully painted like Buddy Rich sticks are painted white, right? Yeah. And they, they feel white. I mean, they yeah, feel that, white. <laughs> that was for the fact that the guy did jazz gigs where he cared a lot about vanity and the fact that like his kit was white. Oh, would, I like, believe that with Buddy Rich. And stuff like that. Like, I would, believe that. Yeah. 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 I think I, I would have a problem with any sort of like stick decoration as soon as it affects like how the stick performs. If it doesn't. If it's like slippery and falling out of your hand or you're adding weight to the stick or affecting the balance, like all of that to me is just not, it's not worth it. Until you get to like the blue man level group of performance art with percussion where like, I don't know, they use like all sorts of weird, like drumsticks that are like shooting liquid out the end of them and all, you know, I understand at a certain point it becomes more artistry and like less about like the musical integrity. But I would say for the most part, it's like a dumb thing to put attention on if you just want, I mean... It's it's weird though, right? Because like, how many millions of views does Casey Cooper have on that video where he lights the drumsticks on fire? You know, like it's a lot, and because it was a cool ass idea, <laughs> that was a really cool idea, yep. right? Um, so I don't know. I would say 
you have to be like all or nothing about that. Like something about like the, like I'm just gonna put a little thing on the end of my drumsticks because it looks like, get out of here with that. Like do it or don't, you know? Like if you're going in, light them on fire or make them out of sparkles or something like that. So uh, for me personally though, I'll just go personal on this one. I'm gonna ghost it. I want wooden drumsticks and I really don't wanna think about this that much. You know, and I should say, while, while we're on drumsticks just briefly, one of the reasons that, one of the things that I love about Minel sticks is that they took this like hyper simplified approach to drumsticks where there's not 4,000 models. And obviously Vic Firth is the company you go to if you want 4,000 models of drumsticks. That's what they do and they do a great job of it. But I, I also like thinking about it the other way, which is like, don't overthink this. There's only so many variations that truly matter. And you can simplify those down to like, let's say 10 models or 15 models, um, which is a lot less intimidating for people sometimes. And I've grown to like that sort of approach where like, just simplify this and don't overthink it. Um, so for in me, I, for me, I see a lot of that in minor sticks, which I like a lot. It's just, it's just, you know, simplified down to what you truly are looking for without all of the all of the nuance that sometimes can leave people looking for a drumstick for 10 years and there's really just relax pick a drumstick you know so i'm gonna ghost it i'm gonna ghost the silly sticks all right cool me too uh, <laughs> not that my opinion matters but me too um cool i just got a little picture for you okay just get your opinion on fish <laughs> man so somebody really made this they really made a genuine fish tank out of a pearl crystal beat acrylic kit weird it's interesting i think my first question is how did they seal the bottom like how did you like how do you fill a floor tom up with water like epoxy or something like some that. sort of epoxy what was it like brandon scott recently did a video where he filled a snare with water to see how it would sound i haven't i haven't watched that video but i know he's he's going that little science a science route it wasn't even really science Based. It wasn't like he was like, let me analyze. He just like went to a cliff in whatever beautiful area he lives in and then filled it with water, which took a lot of water. And then he forgot to plug up the porthole. Yeah. Plug up the porthole. Yeah. You'd have to do that with this too. And it sounded like garbage. I don't know why he was recording outside. (laughs) It's an entertaining video. Sure, sure. Uh, Hats off to Brandon. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I like this idea. I think. As long as I was 100% confident that it wouldn't leak, I would totally fill a clear floor tom with a bunch of fish in there. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, I'll get an accent. That's dope. That's cool. super dope. I would have that in my house. Christmas. I didn't expect that. I thought you would have ghosted that. <laughs> I thought you would have been like, that's stupid. Why would you do that? It's a waste of a kit. Oh, I got nothing against fish, bro. You can hang out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next is. Um, 64th note subdivisions. It's playing 64th notes. Mm. Mm. 64th notes. So, first of all, I think it's going to depend heavily on genre and tempo. Those are the two biggest determining factors of whether or not you would accent or ghost uh, a specific subdivision. But I also think this is a weird trap that a lot of young drummers fall into in that they assign like a, a difficulty level to a certain subdivision as though 64th notes are just unbelievably hard or 32nd notes are like insane compared to like eighth notes. And the reality is all we're talking about is a is a division of a certain it's a certain amount of numbers, right? So like saying 32nd notes or 64th notes, all we're talking about is how many times we're like slicing the pie. So 
a pizza is still a pizza if you cut it 64 times or if you cut it in half or into quarters, right? It's a more complicated pizza, I guess. But, uh, you know, when it comes to subdivisions of 64th notes, it doesn't have to be complicated. 64th notes played as single strokes are really not any different than 64, sorry, than single strokes played in like eighth notes. You know what I mean? It's all the same thing. It's just a, a different mathematical subdivision. So I like removing the stigma from like those big numbers, like 64th notes, 128th notes, like unbelievable. Like it's, it's not inherently more difficult than anything else. There are just more notes. And that really just means more potential for difficulty. You could fit more complex phrases inside uh, of 64th notes. But for the most part, real world musical applications of a subdivision as high as 64th notes or even like 128th notes, it would just be bursts. It would be something along the lines of trap music, right? Where if you had a groove that was very slow, like let's say, let's just mouth this out. So if you were like like 40 BPM, like boom, scat, boom, like those little that's 64th notes. It's like a little tiny expression inside of the entire thing. There's no way that, I mean, I, I can't think of a single song where somebody played consecutive steady 64th notes like against the, I mean, maybe you could find like some super slow trap song where that, that worked. Um, 32nd notes, you can find that for sure. But it ends up just being like, like a, a texture or a little thing that you would use a quick element of, that's what it ends up being. So when you think 64th notes, 128th notes, you know, you're not writing in those subdivisions necessarily. It would just be a gear that you go to briefly in the music and then you go right back down. Because for the most part, unless you're playing at 20 and 30 BPM, like unrealistically slow tempos, they're just going to be indiscernibly fast, a subdivision like 64th notes or 128th notes would be the next one up. So, um, but on a purely mathematical basis, there's nothing to like judge them on to say that they're like good or bad. So they're as valid as anything else. I will give them the hard accent on 64th notes. Yeah, I mean, well, they're so small. Let's call them small. Small's the right word, sure. Yeah. 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 The, are they it's a thin slice? Would you call them necessary? Like, um, they... I, I, I would go mathematical there. So I would say if you had a dollar and you split it into 100 pennies, like you say, do these pennies matter? Well, like, well, math says, yeah, they all matter. It's not mm -hmm. invalid. Um, so matter might be the wrong question. Like they definitely, yeah. they definitely matter. It's, it's more so like, would you ever need to even think about this? And the answer is probably not. Like yeah. probably, you, you could have a whole musical career and never once conceptually execute a 64th note. That, that could definitely happen. But you also, if you don't understand what 64th notes are and why they are equally as mathematically valuable as 32nd notes, let's just say, then I think you're also missing something conceptually in how we we have this grid of rhythm laid out because just how you can take a 16th note and, I'm sorry, let's, let's split that another way. Take eighth notes, cut them in half, now we have 16th notes. Mm -hmm. If you do that to 32nd notes, now you have 64th notes, right? So like from a mathematical perspective, it's just another way to cut the pie. It's equally as valid. But I think what you're kind of getting at is like, are they, are they that useful? Will you ever even touch these? And the answer is like probably not excluding like trap and probably some higher end metal is when you would genuinely have to have a conversation in a band about specific 64th notes. I mean, yeah, I guess talk to like certain metal bands. They'll tell you that they've had whole debates over where the 64th note goes inside of this thing. But for the most part, 
No, no, it's just, you should have a mathematical understanding of them, but no, you're probably not going to use them. Probably not. All right, cool. All right, that'll wrap up Back Center. Ghost. Cool. Let's move on to Sleeper Spotlight. Oh, yeah. Sleeper Spotlight, man. Cool. In this segment, we'll introduce a drummer that y'all are sleeping on, and we'll get Adam's opinions, impressions, and constructive criticism, if any. First up is Thomas Esch. All right. Brother Thomas, uh, here we go. That snare sounds dope. Yeah, really cool. That was awesome. I love the kit sound, man. I love these like hybrid drummers where it's their style and their sound, like their audio sound are like married together. They're not always, I don't know, you can tell the way he plays drums and what he chooses to play is in line with or like in alignment with the audio that he's going for. It's like a whole package kind of thing. I really think that's cool. I love that. I love the distorted bass drum, very Brody Simpson-ish. He's my reference for like that crunchy bass drum sort of sound. Not that he's the guy that invented it. I just think he does a, an awesome job at doing it. Um, and is it a trigger? I don't know anything about triggers. I don't use them. It's a sensory percussion. Some sort of, is that that, that little pad thing above the Remo logo there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. really, really cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, it's a really popular uh, gadget that people are using for hybrid drums these days. I know gotcha. Forrest Rice put out a video about using them recently. That's they're the they're awesome, but the price point is so high. What do they that, cost? I think a thousand for like a set of three. Oh no! And then you've got to no. have you know <laughs> the cables and software necessary to run it, and so you're taking Man. up computing power. I know. bet it's super fun, right? How oh, is that not fun? Oh yeah, yeah, incredibly entertaining to use. It's just the setup and the the barrier to entry is a little high. I think. Yeah, yeah. Interesting though. I mean, this was a dope sound for sure. Like album worthy audio from what I can hear. Um, I mean, really, really interesting sounding setup for sure playing was awesome too i love the like full rim groove thing i thought all this fit made a lot of sense really really cool i like the upside down snare vibes too awesome let's do one more from thomas yeah oh the clap stack didn't even see it Underwater. That underwater <laughs> shit is so cool. That. That was awesome. I don't know what those little beep, boop, splish, splash noises are. Those are so cool. <laughs> so cool. I Here's the thing, man. I look at it as like, I do I want to go through all the hassle to get those noises out of my kit? No, not interested. But I do want my kit to sound that way sometimes. If I could like... If I could uh, just have all that set up, I would have so much fun playing it. It's more so like the the, the technical setup side. Like, do I want to learn about all this stuff? Like, uh, that's where 
like you said, the barrier to entry is high. Yeah. You really have to learn this stuff to do it. It's, it makes it that much more impressive, right? Yeah. Well, I'm sure you could accomplish the same sound in a DAW. It would just be like hours and hours of syncing up beat yeah. per beat, a lot of note work. per note of all these different sounds. Whereas this is just a simplified way of like, it's a trigger. It's a trig condition in like a synthesizer. Yeah. Yeah. And it just makes it fun to sit down and play, right? The act of playing yeah. it out would be so, so much fun. Um, really, really cool setup, man. I think this is a uh, this is an awesome example of where like style in your audio setup can meet your style of playing. Because I see this like cool synergy between those two. You could definitely have somebody who had his same playing style but played on a totally different kit that didn't really fit their style, and vice versa. You could have someone with this audio who plays something that like doesn't really work this way. So I don't know, I see this cool marriage here where it seems like he's focused a good amount of time on both his playing and his style and his approach to like musical composition or rhythmic composition. And then I also see a lot of like hard work and thoughtfulness in the audio setup too, man. So this was really, really cool. I think the kit sounds awesome. The playing style was awesome. And uh, I'm jealous. I wish I had all of this set up, but uh, I didn't do all the work that you did. So that's why you have this set up and I don't. But <laughs> that's awesome. Man. Really cool, Thomas. I love this one. Maybe one day. Yeah. All right, cool. Next up, uh, Ashton Smith Music. Ashton's... Got a couple of videos from him. All right, Ashton Smith. What you got, brother? Cool studio. Man, he is really, really good. Such a pristine studio player, too. That was the first thing that I noticed was he, what's the best way to say it? Like, you almost couldn't hear his personal style a ton in some of those earlier sections where it was just playing, like, what is what ought to be played, right? Like, he's, he's adhering to the music. And by the way, this was a weird, like, half gospel, half rock sort of track. Like, not mm -hmm. fully gospeled out. It was kind of rockish. Interesting track. Um, but he played really appropriate, really tasteful parts, the kind of guy you absolutely want for a studio gig, which is could be what this is. I don't know if this is just the drum performance necessarily, um, but played everything that I like hoped he would play in all of the right sections. So um, predictable in the best way possible until it came to the solo section. And then that's where you hear him sort of loosen up and you hear some character come out. I love that he did the... Um, uh, what was it? It was like a paradiddle diddle with some kicks in there, like a very specific 30-second note linear kind of deal. But then he went into some hand-foot single blasts, gun, 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 those sort of things, which are so difficult to pull off at high speeds. I always tell people that's like one of those things for me that I can do, but I will never do it when it matters because it's not like reliably. <laughs> I can't do it reliably. It's very, very tough. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, it's basically hand foot hand foot hand foot except the hands change so it's right kick left kick right kick left kick that sort of thing and sneaking that into like 30 second no chops at a higher tempo man it's a difficult thing to pull off um, and he did it beautifully in this video so 
Very impressive, man. Very impressive. But I loved how how clear it was when he went from studio drummer mode, playing what ought to be played in the right place, and then switched into his own personal yeah. musical expression when it was time to do that. That was a really obvious distinction in that video. I thought he did an awesome job of that, man. But uh, And the kit sounds sick. I don't know. Does this look like a Truth or SJC? I'm trying to figure out what those lugs might be. Um, I, th- I think it's an SJC. An SJC? Kind of looks like it might be that. With that color, too. Hard Maybe. To say. Well, I'll find out. While you're Googling that, I'm going to play this next uh, next clip here from Brother Ashton. Let's go. Clip two. Really, really cool. So clean. Honestly, so similar to the last one in that all of the awesome things about this guy's playing are so obvious, right? Like like all of the appropriate parts, everything is in the right place for sure. But then there's certain moments where you can hear like this was the spot where you were going to insert your own personal taste or flavor or sort of be a little bit more, um, uh, you know, individualistic and sort of put your own name on the track in a little area. And he does that where it's appropriate. So I would say what I take away from a player like this is like, really really like high musical iq and that he's actively making good decisions behind the kit while he's playing which is also a part of musical maturity right like you have to be behind the kit for countless hours like a very very long time to be able to make those decisions i guess it's possible that he's just rehearsed this song really well but that's not really what i see i see more like somebody who is actively thinking about what should go where and what moment of the song am I in, what should be here and when is my spot coming up. So I see like a really, a heightened level of musical awareness. That's why I say like a heightened musical IQ um, from you, Ashton. So man, this was awesome. Kit sounds awesome. Really, really solid player all around. So definitely, uh, if this guy has under 10K followers, y'all out here sleeping, go check him out, man. I think it's a pearl kit. Is it a pearl kit? I oh, think it's pearl like does... an older pearl kit with tube lugs. The so pearl does make the double tube lugs for sure. It, it it makes it look like a different brand because pearl doesn't normally do those double tube lugs. Yeah, but the lo- the badge throws me off because yeah. that certainly doesn't. It's not a masterworks. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to DM him and yeah. see. But... It sounds good. It sounds like a normal maple kit, but it's yeah. tuned really well, man. Really well. Ashton, if you're watching, throw those kit details down in the comments. Yeah, man. Let us know, brother. Sweet. Cool. Those are two awesome ones, man. That's a good one. Awesome. That'll end it out. Uh, moves on into Q&A. Very self-explanatory. We answer questions from you guys. These questions come from Instagram. They come from YouTube. They come from the forums of OrlandoDrummer.com. They can also be sent straight to me at Chris at OrlandoDrummer.com. So if you have any questions for Adam or the podcast in general, send them on over. Oh, yeah. First question from Juan Paez. Juan. He asks... How good of an idea is it to attend schools such as Berkeley, the Musicians Institute, or mm. New School if your goal is to become a sick drummer? 
Is this important in the path to becoming a famous drummer? Man, that's a great question. And I'm glad we get to cover this on this podcast because I have a lot of thoughts about this. As somebody who went to audio school, um, I got my degree in audio engineering and I got it you know, I got it a little bit early on in the in or at the the early phases of the DIY movement when you know recording gear was like semi affordable, but it wasn't totally obvious or well known that you could learn all of this stuff online. YouTube was still relatively young in 2008 when I went to school. Um, you know, and just a few short years later, it, it it seems like it became increasingly more of a ridiculous idea that you would pay for something like that to go to a, a recording school. And I think a lot of this kind of sort of does apply to the music industry. But I want to talk about a little bit more of like the the personal nature of this decision because it is, it is really an, uh, a personal decision. There are some undoubted benefits that you can get from going to a structured music school, like a traditional university, Berkeley being the go-to example. But of course, there's tons of other prestigious music schools that have incredible programs with very high-level educators and, you know, very, very proven educational systems that will definitely make you into, you know, some version of a professional musician, whether or not you're getting gigs or getting work or getting paid, that's another question. But but in terms of your skill set and your ability to perform and learning what you need to know to go out into the world and to, to make a living as a musician, for sure, those schools can absolutely equip you to do that. I don't think there's any argument that they can't. But the reason I say this is such a personal decision is because what you are gaining when you go to a school like that is really, I see it as two things. The first is the social network that comes from going to a school like that, and that is absolutely important. It's very, very important in, in the music industry, for sure, to be super well-networked, and that's sort of built into the, the educational setup, right? I mean, you're, you're gonna make friends. Some of them are gonna do better than others. Some of them are gonna play for famous people, and you'll still have their phone number. That's just kind of what happens. So there's a lot to be said about that element of the universities in of itself, but, the other thing that I think you really gain from those school systems is the structure. That, that's a big, big thing we got to put in the pro category is that it is hyper-structured. With that said, you can have both of those things without going to school if you choose to do it that way. It is not, it is not exclusive to a university that this is where social connections happen in the music industry. Social connections in the music industry can happen in college, but they don't have to. You can totally make friends on Instagram. You can make friends at local shows. You can make friends uh, around your town, at coffee shops. I don't know. Where do musicians meet and trade phone numbers and get to know each other? All over the place. So that is not exclusive to universities, at least that networking element. You can do that in a lot of different ways. And then when it comes to the structure, which admittedly some people do need a lot of structure. Some people having to go to this class at this time and here's your homework assignment and study this page of this book and here's when the test is. For some people that, that is really the best way for them to do it. But if you are capable of taking a level of personal responsibility where that structure and that accountability that a university would normally, um, they would normally put that on you. If you can put that on yourself, then all of a sudden, in my mind, you have recreated the two most important elements of going to music school, which would be that you're gaining a social network and that you have this big, uh, this big structure here to make sure that you're moving forward at a particular pace that's been predetermined for you. You can make your own structure. You can make your own social network. And so I would give you with this, I would leave you with this alternative way of thinking about going to a music school. If you were going to pay, let's call it $100,000 over four years. 
I don't know what Berkeley costs exactly. It's probably a lot more than that by the time you get your living expense loans because if you're going full time, you're not gonna be able to work and Boston is expensive and you know, whatever. It, it's gonna be a lot of money, but let's call it $100,000 over four years. So you got 25 grand a year for four years in a row and you get to spend this on music education, period. There are a lot of ways to spend $25,000 a year on music education. One of them would be to sign up for every single drum education platform that's online, which would be orlandodrummer.com and like five others. Sign up for all of them. That would only be like 200 bucks a month. So boom, all of a sudden you have, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of archived video drum lessons that you have access to all the time whenever you want. That might cost two to $3,000 a year if you signed up for every platform that exists. So that's one thing you could do, and you haven't even made a dent in your budget. Beyond that, you could study privately with the best drummer in your city. I don't know who that is, but there's definitely some guy in your city, guy or girl, who's like a legendary player, teacher, it's been doing this a long time. So you take private lessons with them regular, regularly. Maybe that's two to 300 bucks a month, same sort of thing. Maybe two, 3,000 bucks a year. You're, you only spent five, six, seven thousand dollars this whole year so far. So you got 20 grand left. Maybe you go to a drum camp every two months. Maybe they could be international drum camps when that sort of thing opens back up. So Benny Greb has a master class weekend or a full week up in the mountains somewhere. I mean he does classes like this. You go to one of those. Maybe you go to um what do they call? I don't know. There's so many different events like these camps that people do like like pros get together and build these camps. You could go to like five or 10 of these in a year and you still haven't closed out that budget of $25,000 a year towards your drum education. Now all that said, all those experiences and all that education is useless if you aren't practicing. And this is where the school sort of wins out in that they have this, this really big structure that helps you do that sort of thing. But I would just consider if you just looked at your tuition as like this pile of money with which you can do anything to make yourself a better musician, what else could you do with it? And I think the argument is really strong that there's a lot of ways to spend that money and giving it to an institution to go sit in a classroom and effectively handing them the reins for the next four years and saying, you make me a better musician. I, I, I personally, that doesn't, get, that doesn't get my vote. You know, If I could go back and do it again, I would have done sort of the latter things that I described. I would have used it to, uh, to sort of construct my own educational experiences and, and taken on that personal responsibility myself, um, knowing that if I really wanna do this, I've gotta put in the work anyway. And going to a, go, adhering to a, to a curriculum, going to a class at a certain time, passing certain tests and getting a piece of paper, that is one of many ways to go about doing this. So his question was something along the lines of like, to be a sick drummer, do I have to do it? The real answer to that question is absolutely not. Absolutely not. That doesn't mean that it is wrong for you to go to music school. It might be the best thing that you ever did. But is it the only way? No, it definitely is not. So hopefully that answers the question. Yeah. Well, the second part is, is this important in the path to becoming a famous drummer? But right now, off the top of your head, name five famous drummers that did not attend a music school formally. Huh. I feel like I could definitely name some. Um, I mean... I, I could name five. I really could. I really could. Yeah. Um, Casey Cooper, Luke Holland, me. Um, excluding yourself. Excluding myself, yeah. Um, I would say, let's see. I'm, I'm going through my favorite drummers is what I'm doing. Um, I think Greb. I don't think Greb went to music school. And personal mentorship is separate from that. That would like, be totally separate. I think separate. his personal teacher was Yost Nickel. So. Yes. 
that's yeah. separate from going to a formal school. Yeah, yeah, totally separate from doing that. Um, Annika, I believe, was under Benny yeah. for a lot of the time. Um, I mean, yeah, you can definitely name name a list of pro drummers who didn't go to music school at all. It's probably like a weird split, to be honest, just across the board. Depends on who you're talking about, you know. Um, to be famous, though, man, that is increasingly less the case just because of YouTube. Just YouTube alone, right? Like, no, music school, you don't have, not for that. If that's your goal, which is, which in my mind is an okay goal to have. So yeah. you want to be a famous drummer, that's fine. Um, no, you do not need to go to music school for that, not necessarily. You do have to replicate many of the things that will happen in a music school. You do have to work hard, you do have to study, you do have to learn how to read music, you do have to do all of that uncomfortable shit that comes with school. My argument here is that you don't need the school to do those things now, right? Awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. Next question. J Drummer Boy 26. What do you think is the best singular overhead mic for picking up an entire kit? Ooh, I have a strong answer for that one. It's a great question, by the way. Um, that would be the Earthworks QTC 30. And now there are many other models that Earthworks makes um, in, in their Omni setup. So the QTC, I believe, are all of their Omni mics. You know what? Before I talk about this, let me pull them up on the website so I can read them along with you here. All right, so I got him pulled up here. Earthworks, uh, this is all of their Omni mics. I'm at earthworksaudio.com. I've worked with Earthworks for a long time, man, and they are genuinely some of the best drum mics on the planet. Ask anybody that's used them, they'll tell you the same thing, man. Um, so I have the QTC30. The QTC30 retails at $799, and it is an Omni mic. For those that don't know what an Omni mic is, you know, out of the end of every microphone, think of it like the microphone casts a net into the room that catches sound. But the nets can have different shapes, and we call those different shapes like um, like polar patterns. So an Omni mic has like an unbelievably wide polar pattern. It's a net that is shaped like a beach ball. It's like a sphere that comes out of the microphone and catches everything around it from every direction. Needless to say, Omni mics are not good for everything. You would never want an Omni mic for your snare because if you pointed it at your snare, it's going to pick up all sorts of other stuff on your kit. It's going to pick up your... Well, it's gonna pick up everything that's even kinda near it, right? So your toms, your hi-hats, everything. So Omni mics are, are ideal um, as like overhead mics for the most part, or for room mics, right? And that's sort of how they describe them on the Earthworks website is, is for room mics. So let's see, they have the QTC 30, the QTC 40, the QTC 50, and then I'm seeing the TC20. So the TC20 seems to be like the lowest end among this spread. Um, so it's basically the 20, the 30, the 40, and the 50. The TC20 seems to be the, the lower end one, which, which might be in a price range that a lot more people find doable. That mic is $399 as listed on Earthworks website. Could be cheaper elsewhere, but man, I have had nothing but good luck uh, with using the QTC series um, on my kit. So right now I'm using my QTC30, which is an Omni mic. I'm actually using it as a crotch mic. Um, so sort of where my like Benny Greb crasher hats are, they're right underneath that. So they get a little bit of kick drum, they get all my toms, they get the cymbals from sort of the underside, so a little bit of body, um, and then they get plenty of snare as well. But with that said, the, the, I've used I've used my, the pair that I have, I've used them as overheads before too, and dude, they are absolutely stunning. So for me, if that's the setup that you were going, going with, just like a, a really organic room sound, Dude, look into the QTCs, man. And another artist I'll, um, I'll reference here would be uh, Carter McLean. He uses the QTC50s, I think. I think he's got them, them high-end bad girls, man. These are 
sick, sick mics. So uh, yeah, Earthworks QTC30. If you're looking for Omni mics for that, like a really, really pristine room sound, dude, look no further. I'm telling you, these things are absolutely badass, man. Great question though, for sure. That'll leave us to outro the whole podcast. Yes, sir. And I've been thinking a lot lately too. Okay. Obviously, I'm not an accomplished drummer. I'm, I'm a, are you I'm a good a, drummer? I'm a, I'm a get. I'm a gearhead. Um, I love being around all this beautiful gear. It's amazing. It's cool. Then I scour through Instagram and I go, "Oh, that's awesome! I need that." Right? We have we all have those moments. True. And I'll bounce back and forth, uh, where. Zildjian symbols would seem really appealing to me. Minel symbols would seem really appealing to mm-hmm. me. Sonar, Tama, Pearl. I think it's important to realize too that if I ever came to the point of like being an endorsed drummer, my choices start to get limited on who approaches me for endorsements and everything like that. Sure. Yeah. Not not everybody's going to send you an offer at the same time. Right. Yeah. So if I were forever a Pearl guy, and then all of a sudden Tom is contacting me, mm. and it really is the best deal that I could ever get. Yeah. And Pearl's not paying any attention to me. I should ignore my pride and allow Tama to at least, you know, get a chance, even though I'm this big Pearl guy. Mm. Well, what sort of thoughts do you have on like picking out brands that, you know, saying things like, oh, I'm a Tama guy or I'm a Pearl guy? Like, what, yeah. what do you think about that? That's, I mean, yeah, it's a great question and it's a real problem, right? Yeah. What, what if you had just sworn yourself to one brand forever and ever and ever and then you find out that one day that brand is just like straight up not interested or another realistic possibility the people running the company don't don't give a shit about what you do maybe they don't care at all right and and of course in the endorsement realm there's a lot more things to consider because it yes gear is like the the primary part of that discussion but the people is also another part of that discussion right so if they don't support what you do or if you just don't like the people that are running the company or they don't like you or there's bad chemistry there then from a business standpoint this is not a relationship that you want to pursue but i think what you're getting at too a lot of it is like this this gear ideology thing that people have. And like you said, you know, Pearl guy, Tama guy, you know, that, that that's like somehow this identity thing that you have. And I think that is a great closing message is that all of that is nonsense. It's total nonsense, man. It there's Of course, there's nothing wrong with having um, having your favorite brands where, where you say, you know what, I've played. I've played a Tama, I've played a Sonar, I've played a Pearl, I've played a DW, and you know what? DWs just speak to me, man. It's the way that they look, it's the way that they sound, it's the lug shape, it's the, you know, and then of course, you're gonna get to know that brand better than than any others. You're gonna end up learning all of the lines and the series and the history of that company and the options that they have, and there's definitely nothing wrong with that. I think everybody is like, is vulnerable to getting sucked into that sort of trap, where you just have a brand that you like, and you learn all their stuff, and that's just kind of how you identify yourself, but, I think it is really important to to look at companies from the endorsement standpoint as more than just the gear. It's not just the gear. It is also the integrity that this company has. It is the reputation that this company has. Are they well-liked? Do they have good business practices? Do they have any sort of history in this industry? What, what does their history look like? Have they consistently and satisfactorily met the needs of drummers because that's really the only reason a drum company should exist is if they are meeting the needs that drummers have and solving problems for drummers. What does their history look like in that context? Are their artists happy? Do they treat people well? Do they treat their customers well, right? How's their quality control? Like these are all things that go into whether or not I like a drum brand or don't like a drum brand. Um, What finishes they offer is just like one small part of that equation, right? 
So you might say that like Pearl has all of the best finishes. I kind of agree that they do. They have like they have the, the longest, the, the biggest list of finish we options. Could, right? We could disagree about that all day long. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But, but it's one of many factors. It's one of many, many factors. So I think one of the one of the things that you can do to loosen the reins on this conversation is to just not be. Uh, so closely identified as a musician, like with a certain brand of anything, right? I mean, because you have to concede in this conversation, even as a like a minor artist, dude, there's no way I'm just going to lie to you about Zildjian Constantinople's sounding fucking amazing. Like, why would I do that? Why would I tell you that I don't like the sound of that symbol? They sound uh, trash. They, sa- <laughs> they sound trash. They're horrible. Made in Boston. No, they're, they're dope. They're super dope. They're of course great. they are, right? And I hate that, that sometimes you have to play this game where you pretend that other companies don't make super awesome gear because of endorsements. In- endorsements like seem to like taint the water in this conversation sometimes it's really really silly and as i've gotten older and been a professional musician for much longer i've learned to not do this at all like if somebody says i'm a zildjian guy and it, you know that doesn't i don't care i don't care i bet you i could show you a minor that you really love too that's closing doors on yourself like it why, is. yeah why yeah. would you limit yourself to that yeah and especially when you're young too man it's i i understand the like matchy matchy approach where you want all of your symbols to be the same series i get it i totally get it uh you want your snare to be the same brand as your shells your toms I understand all of that. I, I totally get it. But I think leaving those doors open, like you said, you know, not closing those doors um, and being open to this idea that everybody makes dope shit. Like, why, why? of course, that's the truth, right? Of course, every company makes awesome gear. Um, there's just no way around that. And you don't have to put yourself in a tiny, tiny little box um, and pretend that other gear in the world doesn't exist. Everybody makes awesome stuff, man. So, yeah, endorsements make this a very tricky tricky part of the conversation um, because I'm, you know, to be honest, I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you to go out and buy Zildjian symbols. That would be really weird coming from a minor artist. But there's a certain level of like um, loyalty and, and integrity, I guess, that I have to have for my relationship with minor. But at the same time, I don't need to pretend that like other symbols aren't awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Same with drums, same with heads, same with everything. So what I love about this podcast is that it lets us open these conversations up where it's not just like some clip that we're making necessarily. Like I get to explain this stuff um, sort of in a longer format, which is how it needs to be explained and understood. You know, that this is, it's kind of complicated sometimes, but I guess that's my closing message. Everybody makes awesome gear. So deal with that, you know. Bye everything yeah buy everything (laughs) buy Buy it it all all. you need 40 drum sets and uh yeah you also need two memberships to orlandodrummer.com one just didn't cut in it so (laughs) two netflix accounts get Uh, it don't share (laughs) cool i think think that'll do it that'll do it awesome thank you guys for tuning in very much appreciated adam here the orlando drummer and thank you chris you're welcome Awesome. We will see you guys next week. We got brother Joe Hodgen on the podcast. He is the master loopsmith for OrlandoDrummer.com. Been a part of our family and our team for about 10 years now. So excited to have him on next week. And we will see you guys there. Later. Bye.